Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. We got a depressing one, you know, for a change. I think we've, we've had a few uh, depressing ones before, but not because the subject was depressing. No, 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 no. Uh, they were depressing because my execution of a topic was just so pitiful. I mean, a couple of years ago, I somehow made an interview with the winner of the National Spelling Bee seemed depressing. And the kid was great, came from a family that, that didn't even pressure him. <sighs> oh, well. The one today, though, is is a great depressing one because it's on immigration with two terrific guests, Molly O'Toole, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who's on leave from the L.A. Times to write a book on immigration. And Jerry Robinette, who was in charge of an investigation for ICE, uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Homeland Security in their San Antonio office. He was in charge of guys like Hank, the brother-in-law in Breaking Bad, I think. I think that was his job. Anyway, two different perspectives, but both agree that the system is broken, and indeed it is. The backlog on asylum cases, over 2 million pending cases and growing. That's a 5 to 20-year waiting period, and the whole system is just underfunded uh, for political reasons. Jerry says we overspend on the border. You know, most immigrants who come in are looking for border guards. They just cross the border. They look for border guards to turn themselves in and claim asylum. And while this past week, President Biden did negotiate a pretty good deal to prevent us from going over the cliff, we certainly aren't devoting anywhere near the funding we need on immigration. Because, as Catherine Rampell of the Washington Post recently pointed out, the U.S. has too few immigrants, not too many. We desperately need immigrants to replace the baby boomers that are retiring. Our problem is that we have too few young Americans. The number of Americans over the age of 65 will double in the next 40 years. Either Americans quickly need to start procreating like it's 1946. Or we need some young immigrants to join America's workforce and their kids ready to step it up when those parents get their Social Security. The fact is that in this country right now, there are nearly twice as many job vacancies for every unemployed worker who can fill them. And these are jobs where immigrants have been ably stepping in to fill the gaps. A few weeks ago, I took my wife to an emergency room in New York City. Doctors, nurses, technicians, and other personnel from all over the world took wonderful care of Franny. We need immigrants in all kinds of fields, construction, engineering, food services, teaching, child care, and, of course, comedy. Now, some people say those jobs should go to Americans, especially comedy. Two points. First, and if it sounds like I'm repeating myself, I am. There are simply not enough Americans to fill them, especially jobs that don't pay great or which require long hours of hard physical labor. Those are so hard to fill. And let me tell you why. They don't pay great and require long hours of physical labor. Right now, as a nation, we already rely on people from other countries to harvest our produce, clean our office buildings, babysit our kids, or work in meat processing plants. Trump Vineyards gets special permission to bring in hundreds of undocumented workers a year. 
These are the same people Trump has demonized. And according to two New York Times reporters in an October 2019 article, quoting former aides, then President Trump often talked about fortifying a border wall with a water filled trench stocked with snakes or alligators, prompting aides to seek a cost estimate. And he wanted the wall electrified with spikes on top that could pierce human flesh. And would you believe Marilago has told the Labor Department that there's no choice but to hire undocumented immigrants because there simply aren't enough Americans to fill their positions. Oh, you would believe that. Mm -hmm. Americans have always been made uncomfortable by immigrants that aren't like them. No Irish need apply. Those signs existed in the United States throughout the 19th century until enough Jews came in, including my grandparents. Those Americans started thinking, hey, these Irish speak English and they believe in Christ. They're all right by Jimmy. Now, my grandparents immigrated to this country just before the turn of the, the century. There were eugenicists at the time who promoted the idea that Jews are stupid. Now, I've known a stupid Jew or two, but just as many, if not more, stupid Gentiles. I mean, if Jews are so stupid, how do we figure out how to start those California wildfires with our giant space lasers? I mean, that was, that was no mean trick. Anyway, a great one today. At times, this will be disturbing, at times funny. And I like especially that we have two guests who come at this from two very different perspectives. Molly O'Toole, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and ICE Homeland Security investigator Jerry Robinette. And at one point, Jerry refers to undocumented immigrants as aliens. And I step in to suggest that we might want to cut that out. And Molly kind of reprimands Jerry. And then Jerry says something very interesting. He says, force a habit. You know what? Why don't you keep it in? Just keep it in. Which I thought was actually very cool of him. And I think you'll agree. So here is Molly O'Toole and Jerry Robinette on the border and immigration. It is a great one. You know. For a change. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen. That's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin, and you want to visit the Führer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Führer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com slash franken rules and restrictions may apply the angie's list you know and trust is now angie and we're so much more than just a list we still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly we can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish so remember angie's list is now angie and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Molly, <laughs> you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. 
Now, did you used to write about immigration for the, for the LA Times? I mean, it used to be for the LA Times, right? Yeah, I- yeah I was with the LA Times for uh, almost five years until February, and now I'm working on my book full-time, which hopefully will come out sometime 2024 or 2025. And I'm guessing that's going to be on immigration? Exactly. It's all about uh, international migration. So people from all around the world who are coming through the Western Hemisphere, South, Central America, and then coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. So some of these people we've been seeing in the news, the Venezuelans, the Russians, the Ukrainians, people from all around the world who are coming. So I've been following that journey myself. So I'm going to get to Jerry. Jerry, I'll get to you in a second. Have some patience, Jerry. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, uh, the thing is that people come across the Mexican border from all over the world, right? Exactly. Okay. Well, I mean, we mainly think of it as Central America and Mexico and some of South America. That's what we mainly think of, but it's not just from there, right? Yeah, we, d- we do mainly think of especially Central Americans and Mexicans, but actually that's increasingly outdated. Uh, since about 2019, more people have come from outside of Central America and Mexico than from within the region. So this is an increasingly, this is really a global migration, but our politics and, you know, and some of our policy is sort of still stuck in this 1990s mindset that it's all single adult Mexican males. But I've, I've met someone from every country on the planet. And is George Soros helping to bring in uh, them from like uh, terrorists from Syria and stuff? Oh, let's not engage in those conspiracy theories. Why not? Jerry, that's a good one, isn't it? That, and that's a good conspiracy theory. Uh, uh, <laughs> now, Jerry, you were a special agent uh, in charge of ICE and Homeland Security's investigations, right? Is it? In, in the one, in, in, at least in San Antonio. Were you in San Antonio? That's correct. Uh, I oversaw most of the offices that are located along the southwest border of Texas and Mexico. And Jerry, you're no longer with ICE and Homeland Security. So what are you doing now? Presently, I work as the investigative director over at Nixon Peabody Law Firm over their government investigations and white collar section. Okay. You're not writing a book? Uh, nope. Okay. We'll leave that up to Molly. Okay. No, no comp, uh, competition. So um, let's, you guys uh, know a little bit more about immigration than I do, although I was on the Judiciary Committee and uh, I was part of that 2013 uh, bill that got 68 votes in the Senate and then never got uh, passed in the House. And that, as you'll all recall, all my listeners will recall, and probably you too as well. I uh, was going to give a path to citizenship for people already in the country. So it didn't have to do with people crossing the border, right? Is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> that is a, uh, well, the right had a question mark on it. <laughs> well, in some ways it does have to do with people across the border in the case that those could have been people who crossed the border probably a long time ago. Yeah, it would previously cross the border. Yeah, we now made up the undocumented population. But actually, most of the undocumented population in the United States are visa overstays. So people who didn't cross the border, they probably came, or they crossed the border in a way, but they came on a plane. On, it was on an airplane. Tourists or business, et cetera. Of course. So now uh, we just had Title 42 ended, uh, which was that thing passed during uh, Trump. What what was that? It was uh, basically passed during COVID saying there was a a health risk from immigrants crossing the border. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, has there been a huge influx since then or what's what has happened since that was lifted? Molly, you want to give your perspective first? Sure, sure. Happy to. Uh, I just spent a week in Tijuana, um, so right on the the border, right on the other side. I know, I know that. Well, sure. Uh, <laughs> of course, you do, but I didn't know if all of your listeners do. Um, it, you know, many people they, they the border looms large in their mind, but they don't necessarily know much about. Okay, it. I'm going to be less defensive about so what I, I know. A, I was in Mexico for the last week, trying to sort of observe what this policy looks like mm-hmm. in practice. And what is interesting that what happened is, yes, the administration, the Biden administration and many critics of the Biden administration, people all across the board who are involved in immigration expected there to be a pretty large increase around the lifting of Title 42, because essentially the border has been closed under Title 42 or the pretense of Title 42 since March of 2020. But it's actually been closed even before that under the Trump administration. But since March of 2020, you've had the border basically be closed. You've had tens of thousands of people who are sort of 
piled up or in this in this backlog just on the other side of the border. So it's sort of logical to think, okay, once this is lifted, then there's going to be a pretty big increase. Now, people were expecting that increase to happen after Title 42 was lifted. But what actually happened is that that increase in numbers appears to have come before Title 42 was lifted, in part because the Biden administration has put these new regulations into place. And many people, it seems, sort of made this decision, well, you know, the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. And they sort of took their chances uh, to try and cross before Title 42 was lifted and these new regulations went into place. So we actually have numbers down at the border right now. But for talking to people all across the border, reporting in southern Mexico and in other countries along this route, it's not as if those people have disappeared. The numbers aren't down necessarily. There's just sort of this wait and see period as people try and figure out what this new policy is. Yeah. And I, and I think what I would add to what Molly just said is, you know, the numbers that, that surged that was expected was not there. I think the administration was very sensitive to the optics and as a result, did everything they could do to prepare for it. However, you know, they're there. They're on the other side of the border and they're just waiting to see just exactly what the definition of the new policy and what are the practice. Yeah. That's the unfortunate part of all of the immigration enforcement. There's just so much, there's so much discretion. And, uh, you know, that discretion leads to a misunderstanding. This is in our asylum process. Is that where you're saying all the discretion is or so much of this discretion is or this discretion is? Within the asylum process, just within the whole immigration process as it relates to uh, crossing that border legally or illegally. Our whole asylum process is what, what's the backlog on asylum? What is the numbers there? Yeah, right now it's uh, there's 2,097,244 pending cases in immigration courts across the country. Jeez. And the, the wait time, um, the amount of time on average that those cases are pending is more than more than two years, 762, 762 days. So our system is completely broken or broken or very broken. <laughs> I, I give you three choices on everything. How about not working? I mean, I, I think if you look at the very not you, working, what you consider what we call the non-detained docket. In other words, those are individuals that have been released and are pending a court hearing before an immigration judge that can take you anywhere between five and 10 years. Okay. Now, I remember, okay, so in 2013, I go back to this only because there something happened after that. And um, I think it was Eric Cantor losing his election mm -hmm. and the Republican Party uh, suddenly realizing, oh, I see we're against immigration and we're especially against uh, immigration on the border. And so can you trace that at all for me? Is that you said, mm hmm. So that tells me you were agreeing. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's really interesting. You had this sort of post-mortem report that, that a lot of people will point to, and that was after 2012, where the Republican Party actually said, hey, based on demographics and a lot of other things, this idea that a more diverse voting population will go Democratic, you know, right. lessons learned from the 2012 campaign, that we need to open up this tent, that the Republican Party, that this is what the post-mortem said. Yeah, it was a postmortem from Romney losing. Exactly. So we need okay. to be more diverse. We need to be more welcoming to immigrants. In many ways, certain groups of immigrants, Latinos, they, in many ways, they may be natural conservatives. So sort of how the argument sure. went. Religious, very religious. Family, religion, et cetera. So the postmortem actually said, we lost this election in part, and we'll lose every election henceforth, the way the demographics of the country are shifting, if we don't have a more diverse, more welcoming message. So that was sort of interesting to see for then, you know, only a little bit later and after the sort of really the the last attempt at something, quote unquote, comprehensive immigration reform, whatever that phrase even means anymore. It's basically without meaning, you know, the last after, right after the last attempt at that, you saw Cantor. So I think many, many people do try and read the tea leaves here and, and look backwards and say, well, then from Cantor, they took the lesson. Okay, well, actually, postmortem, was BS and uh, we need to <laughs> we need to go harsher against immigration and to many people the Trump victory in particular in 2016 
seem to bear that out. That seems to be how the political thinking goes, the political analysis on that. But, you know, you can sort of cherry pick isolated cases across the board uh, where an election went one way or an election went another way. This guy was uh, this guy was the majority leader, Canner, and he loses a primary to a guy whose uh, his one issue was immigration. And he was supported by right wing talkers like Laura Ingram. So for what that's worth, they decided that to win in the Republican Party, you have to be kind of anti-immigration. And that's why it was never brought up again, right? It was never brought up the House because you need a majority of the majority in the House. That's what the Republican, who was the leader then? Was it Ryan? Mm -hmm. uh, said, uh, it was the speaker, said, uh, well, I guess we're not, uh, not going to pass immigration reform. I think that that I mean, I'm maybe I'm doing the conventional wisdom, but at least I can spout the conventional wisdom. That's something. Yeah, that, that is that, that. Generally speaking, I think that is the sort of conventional wisdom on, on what's on what's happened here. But then you look at 2016. That's what we do here on the African <laughs> podcast. You look at 2016 <laughs> and you look at 2020. And, you know, if if President Trump and now nominee again or, or candidate, at least, sorry for president again in 2024 and you know his his obsession his his main issue uh his sort of animating issue was immigration 2016 goes one way 2020 goes another so how do you read the tea leaves on that one i, I don't know i'd be interested to know jerry's thoughts here <laughs> <laughs> jerry you're just an investigator I'm just, <laughs> You're just a humble investigator. I'm just a humble. What do you know about conventional wisdom? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, we, we try to deal within the black and white when in enforcement. We try to stay out of getting pulled into the, the politics, much less the politics of immigration. Every time we've gotten close to that, I think we've been beaten up either to dismantle or defund ICE. Okay. Then why did I have you on, Jerry? <laughs> No, I, I know why I had you on. To keep Molly honest. <laughs> I, well, that. Really honest. We deal with the truth, Jerry. Well, I know what I wanted to ask you about, Jerry, because I've asked you about this before. Lindsey Graham and now some other Republicans uh, believe that we, our military, <laughs> uh, should invade <laughs> Mexico, not to take over Mexico, but to go after uh, people who are smuggling fentanyl. And his argument is fentanyl is, is killing tens and tens of thousands of Americans every year. And we need to defend uh, our border. And it's coming across this border. And uh, we should go down there and not to invade Mexico other than to take out these smugglers. These people are smuggling fentanyl. Is that what he, that's his argument, right? Correct. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I tell you, having worked... Uh, for so many years in Texas, and then, of course, been responsible for that southwest border part of Texas. One thing that w that nobody seems to want to talk about right now, it's all about either the Mexicans, the Mexicans are not doing enough, they're not doing anything. And no doubt, there's a lot to be, that can be done in Mexico. You know, our ability to be effective in our investigations as it relates to the Mexican side of the border is very minimal especially under the current administration in Mexico. But at the same time, in all honesty, what we're not talking about is, you know what, if we didn't snort and smoke so much dope that comes up from Mexico, these cartels would not have the power that they have right now. You know, they would not have the power to, to bribe and to basically in, inflict and the pressures that they can inflict on that government at the state and at the federal level. We, we just don't want to accept the fact that if it wasn't for our demand for that for drugs, you know, we wouldn't be in this mess. Yeah, if I can just echo Jerry there, I mean, and, and Jerry knows more about this than I do, but from the reporting that I've done, I mean, the vast majority of drugs that are smuggled in the United States are smuggled at ports of entry in cars, not between ports of entry, not by migrants, at ports of entry, and often by U.S. citizens. Also, the precursor chemicals for fentanyl are coming from China. So you, what, you re, what you have in many ways is a postal service problem. Uh, you can get some of those chemicals to make fentanyl. And yes, Mexico is increasing. The cartels in Mexico are increasingly producing, but also consuming. Mexicans are increasingly consuming 
fentanyl, and Mexico is, in, is, is increasingly dealing with its own fentanyl and opioid crisis. But you can also, it's, it's a male issue. You can also get some of those precursor chemicals and, and make fentanyl uh, through <laughs> getting all of that through the mail. So we're talking about ports of entry. We're talking about the postal service. We're talking about U.S. citizens who are being the smugglers. And you have to, you have to point out that politicians start, such as Lindsey Graham, this is not the first time Lindsey Graham has suggested this, um, it tends to be a, a political season, although it's always political season, but there tends to be some election coming around when all of a sudden you have people start talking about sending the U.S. military to invade Mexico. And like Jerry said, there's so much cooperation that goes on between the on the Mexican side and the U.S. side when it comes to combating drugs. And in addition to not being willing to acknowledge that the U.S. is the largest market in the world for for drugs, and it's often you know your average Mexican citizens who are paying the price, which hundreds of thousands of people disappeared in Mexico. I mean, the other part that we don't want to acknowledge is how much leverage Mexico really has uh, when it comes to drugs, when it comes to migration. Without that security cooperation, obviously, it needs a lot of improvement. There's a lot of corruption and mistrust there, uh, especially on the part of the Mexican security forces. But without that security cooperation, uh, without that kind of cooperation to combat drugs, Mexico has a lot of leverage here. So if you're the president and Congress, what can you do about that? I mean, you can tell Americans stop consuming drugs, but what can you do about this? Well, you know, look, I, I think I think our first step is to acknowledge to the Mexicans that, you know, we're equally responsible for this problem. Obviously, we on our side, we're responsible for the demand. Would that help? I mean, it wouldn't hurt. Uh, I, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> and, and I think what I hear is we want to seem that we seem to want to point all the blame to Mexico without taking some responsibility for this mess that we're in. You know, look, there used to be a time when cartels had to have the cooperation of the uh, state and local authorities to operate in Mexico. And Today, in today's world, the state and local law, uh, law enforcement and governments along the northern border of Mexico have to coordinate and get permission from the cartels to do what they would like to do. Uh, they control that northern border and nobody else does. The military is, is effective from time to time, but they, they can't prolong their presence there uh, without their own corruption issues. This is not a one answer, one approach. You know, we've got to deal with the consumption. Then we have to deal with the enforcement. Then we have to deal with how do we work together with Mexico to help them without basically blaming them for everything. Hey. <laughs> tall, tall order, but for sure. Agree with, agree with Jerry. I mean, the other things that, that can be done here is, you know, you can go after those precursor chemicals. I mean, obviously the relationship with the United States and China is not the best right now. Um, but you can try and target those precursor chemicals. You can put them on, you can give them a basically a higher, I should know what the actual process for this is. Jerry would know, you know, but controlled substances, you can try and put some controls in place for the precursor chemicals. You follow the money, you can go after the money. Everyone is using the US banking system. Um, so you can go after the money for especially these cartels. And the guns, the guns that are used to enforce and provide security, they come from the United States. So there's a lot that can be done with guns flowing south, uh, the money that's being moved, of course, consumption and impunity, helping support the Mexican justice system and these institutions of justice in Mexico to target corruption and to have some kind of consequences um, for some of these top actors uh, and sort of help stand up the Mexican justice system to have less impunity. But the money, the precursor chemicals, the guns, the consumption and then is some semblance of justice in Mexico. I mean, those are all steps that could be taken. Okay. What part of what you prescribe there is something we're trying? <laughs> if not, why not? And also, it sounds unbelievably daunting and impossible. And then I put a question mark at the end of that. You know, look, I I'll tell you this. When I was in charge in my offices, probably 70% of everything that we worked on had to do with money, drugs, guns going southbound. I mean, that was our focus. At the end of the day, if the cartels don't have money, the cartels don't have guns, that's the only way you can mitigate their 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 capabilities 
of dominating the way they've dominated that region of Mexico. Uh, that's always been our priority. You know, following the money, every investigation that we did involving just about anything has always had a financial component. My biggest concern with what we have going on in today's world is, you know, we're so focused on the optics and the illegal immigration on the border and the diverting of resources that usually would go to, you know, drug enforcement, uh, smuggling, whether it's alien smuggling, drug smuggling, weapons going southbound, money going southbound. That's what we risk the, uh, at the current time. I mean, there's a lot to be done just to address that. We don't have enough just to address those issues. You consider the amount of money that's being diverted to to deal with the immigration issues right now. I mean, that money's coming out of somebody's budget. They're not printing new money. And what we've seen it, what I've seen in the past is as we get towards the end of the fiscal year, you know, a lot of the things that we want to do, we want to purchase at, in support of investigations are what is risked. And, and, you know, we're just not able to, you know, fulfill our capabilities on the investigative and the enforcement side because a lot of that money has been diverted to projects like you have going on right now with immigration enforcement. And that's not the illegal side of it. Um, so why not just go down there with our military? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, um, uh, if you had uh, 10 minutes with, with Lindsey Graham, it wouldn't make any difference because this is a political thing, right? You're not going to invade a, a, a sovereign country. You know, I, I, look, I'm not a professor. We have before. That would Sorry. be an, an act of war, I would think. Yeah, with Mexico. Not a good idea. We'll be right back with Molly O'Toole and Jerry Robinette after these words. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Let's um, talk about fixing the asylum process because it feels to me that we need uh, more judges and immigration lawyers. Again, we're talking about funding. And like uh, that was something Jerry brought up is that the money seems to be going for immigration, you know, people crossing the border uh, and security, but not for this process. But w what can we do? What can we do? What should we do? There's this sort of hyper obsession with the border when it comes to the immigration conversation. And as Jerry said, you know, whichever administration it is, Republican or Democrat, you know, the sort of only way success seems to be measured when it comes to immigration is, you know, numbers of apprehensions at the border, numbers at the border, the border, the border, the border. It's a very reactionary sort of constant crisis mode um, that's more about the optics than actually solving the problem of 2 million cases backlog more than two years on average. You know, I'm meeting people who have come across the border either at a port of entry or between the port of entry over the last couple of weeks, they've gotten notices to appear in immigration court. And those dates are in 2025 and 2026, years from now. Um, but we never have a conversation about, you know, we talk about, well, we got to increase funding for the Border Patrol. Border Patrol, first off, doesn't want to be doing this at all. They don't want to be doing processing. They don't want to be doing humanitarian. And what that's a, an acknowledgement of is this fundamental shift that 
People aren't trying to evade Border Patrol. People are looking for Border Patrol to turn themselves in and claim right. asylum. And that's this really fundamental shift that our system is not ready for. But we still talk about, you know, Border Patrol agents, you know, more money for the wall, money, more money for Border Patrol agents. That's really reactionary. It's sort of identifying a symptom and not a cause, which is never to suggest that people are some kind of disease you know, people have always moved for the history of humanity. But what you need is, you know, increased funding for USCIS. You need to hire more asylum officers. There was a mass exodus of asylum officers under the Trump administration in particular. There needs to be hiring to just get back to where things were, much less hiring more asylum officers because more people are coming. You need to hire more immigration judges. There's a lot of people who suggest that immigration courts should be independent courts. They're actually under the Department of Justice. So whenever you get a new attorney general, they can sort of just reinterpret prior cases and the whole thing sort of becomes even more chaotic than it already was. I don't know, restore the U.S. refugee program, uh, which basically has been non-existent. President Biden set a goal, basically, of 125,000. And I think last year they resettled 12,000. If you restore the U.S. refugee program and get anywhere close to the amount of slots that the administration has uh, recommended, you take pressure off of the asylum system because no one wants to make this incredibly dangerous journey to where they have to physically present themselves at the border because that's the only place where you can actually access asylum. Another way to discourage a crossing between ports of entry, unauthorized crossing, is to reopen the ports of entry. <laughs> There's a logic to this. If you keep ports of entry closed since 2019, but you want people to claim asylum the quote-unquote right way, but then they can't do it because the ports of entry are closed, then it's sort of logical to expect that they might start crossing between ports of entry. So reopen ports of entry and increase capacity at the ports of entry, which, by the way, was the system prior to the Trump administration. Uh, and that will help regularize, control, uh, and organize that flow um, and access to counsel. It's a really, really complicated, the immigration system, for us to understand. A former senator here, an HSI investigator, an immigration reporter for you know 10 years or so, and I'm aging myself there. If we can't understand it, then how is someone who's going to just, who's crossed 20 countries, just showed up at the border, is probably being fed a lot of misinformation by coyotes and, and smugglers who are looking to take advantage of them and just take their money? How the hell are they going to understand it? So that leads to a really drawn out process in and of itself. So those are just a few ways that you can really target that backlog for adjudicating asylum, you know, in addition to, and I promise I'll stop talking now, but, you know, a recognition that this might be the new normal. I mean, we live across the planet. There's historic global displacement. There are more people displaced sure. across the world than at any time ever in recorded human history. And this might be the new normal. And some of this is climate, right? Mm -hmm. some, some of the Central America stuff. But, but Jerry, before you ask for equal time, I just <laughs> want, I, I, I want to switch the conversation just a teeny bit because uh, I think Molly uh, said a lot there. But, but what I want to talk about is part of the reason we did this in, in 2013 is the Chamber of Commerce wanted it, right? Pretty much everyone wanted this immigration reform that we had then. Now we've, since Trump came in and maybe Eric Cantor's defeat, there's an entire political party that uh, sees votes by denigrating immigration. But this is what I want to say. We need immigrants. Old white people are getting older, like including me, and including actually uh, both of you, but not as old as me. And we're uh, going on um, uh, Medicare and Social Security, and we need immigrants, right? Yeah, you're. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, look. Yeah, everywhere you go nowadays, it's all help wanted, help wanted, help wanted. It's it's amazing how many openings are out there. My response is, look, we we do we have to have legal immigrants. We have to have a system. And, and uh, Molly said a lot, uh, and, and a lot of the things that Molly said can warrant a whole podcast. To look, we don't we don't have the resources within the system to have an honest, workable immigration process. It's it just it's overwhelmed. Let's just talk about, you know, asylum or, or anybody applying for any kind of entry. If, if we have a system that because of the, the lack of space, detention space, 
or the restrictions on detentions. And you can't detain everybody. There's Nobody's going to ever try to defend that totally, considering the numbers. But when you detain, when you release these individuals, and now it takes, you know, five and 10 years before their case comes before a judge, immigration judge. And for whatever reason, now you, you they've decided to d- deport somebody. Now that person has, you know, established citizens, you know, kids that are born here. They've had families, they have jobs. Some of them are in, in great standing with the community. I guarantee you the first thing that happens when ERO, Enforcement Removal Operations, tries to enforce that order deportation, it becomes a, 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 a PR nightmare for ICE because now you've got, you know, you're trying to separate the father from the children, from the wife. It just becomes, we, we kick that can down the, the road so far because our immigration system is just not operating. It's, it's you know, credibility, it doesn't have, to me, I think at the end of the day, that's what it's going to have to have for any of these things that are being proposed by the current administration, you know, whether it's the processing centers, whether it's the CBP-1 app. What, what is that app? What is that app? CBP-1 app is a, is a process by which in, individuals, they have to basically apply for start their, their asylum process via the CBP-1 app. And you know, it's, they, an app. it's an app. It's an app, and they ultimately get an appointment. Problem is, is that the system is 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 overwhelmed with the activity, and and many times shuts down because of the amount of people that are trying to you know submit for an appointment. But you know, at the end of the day, if these band aids don't work, we're going to be back to square one. We're going to be dealing with the same kind of numbers that we're dealing with again. Look, look at what's sitting across the border. They're waiting. If, if the system doesn't accommodate them, they're going to come across or they're going to try to come across legally or illegally. They don't have anywhere to go to. They can't go back to their country. You know, this is uh, also very encouraging what I'm, what I'm hearing. Well, it's, it's a mess. Well, if I can just step in for just a, just a second here. And, I, um, you know, CBP-1 is really interesting. The, you know, the administration actually quietly started rolling this out in, in actually the spring of 2021, uh, but nobody really noticed it at the time. Uh, this app is used by, you know, truckers, people with boating licenses. I mean, it was basically trying to find a, a technological way to try and streamline some of the processes of applying for permission to cross the border and somebody somewhere said, I know, let's use this. Let's use this for asylum seekers. And at the time, the administration stressed that, no, this was not going to be the only way that you can gain access to asylum because that's not how the law is written. doesn't mention anything about an app. You have the right to seek asylum under U.S. law at the border, that this would not be used as a way to sort of prevent people from being able to access a port of entry where they can try and seek asylum. But that's exactly what's happened. And under these new regulations that have been put into place once Title 42 was lifted on May 11th, and and in the implementation, even though the regulation says people should still be able to present at a port of entry now that Title 42 is gone under Title 8 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, now they're saying, and they're being told consistently, no, you have to have an appointment on this app. Uh, It's an incredibly buggy app. There's only a couple hundred, um, I think maybe a total of a thousand across the border each day appointments. You have to take a photo. It does facial recognition. It's notoriously bad uh, for people of color, uh, which has been a consistent criticism of facial recognition technology. Mm. You have to have a smartphone in the first place. You have to have Wi-Fi access. These are people who are stuck in northern Mexico, in what the U.S. government itself says are the most dangerous cities in the world, and they're trying to press refresh over and over and over again to try and get an app. There's even more demand for these appointments now uh, than there was before, but there hasn't really been an increased capacity. They've made a few changes, um, but that's being challenged in litigation as well, whether the app itself is even legal. And it's actually being challenged from both directions, from the conservative states, uh, as well as um, from some um, some advocates who are trying to suggest that, that the, the require, requiring the use of the app, that that's the only way you can uh, approach support and gain access to seeking out asylum, that that in and of itself may not be legal. You, you know, Al, this is why 
when I got exposed to immigration enforcement after DHS was formed, you know, one of the things that the uh, the agents from immigration who had been working immigration all their lives, they they told me, boss, it ain't over until the alien wins. It, it, it's frustrating because again, you know, the law isn't the law. You know, it's not black and white. There's so much discretion at, at all levels, and and like Molly said earlier. You know, the poor aliens trying to figure out what I can do. Well, when we say alien, uh, of course, we mean immigrant or what? what, Non citizens, I guess, is the correct word. The uh, political. Molly, Molly, what would uh, the uh, immigrant or no, it wouldn't be. You could just call them people. (laughs) That is. That is what they are. <laughs> People who are non-U.S. citizens, sure. I'm, sure. I'm quoting the law. That's all. That's what I'm used to, unfortunately. Well, but you're not quoting the law in that context. That was a uh, that was a paraphrase. We don't have to use the word alien. I mean, come on. It's a fundamentally dehumanizing term. If you are actually literally, literally citing uh, the law, uh, which in that case y- you weren't, um, it, there's, no, you, there's no reason why you have to use the word. Now, of course, I know in law enforcement. But Molly, it's, Molly it's I just want. It's a habit. Sorry. I want to reassure Jerry that we're not going to, you know, we, we've got a, we've got a lot of discussion here. And I, Jerry, you don't uh, we cannot have that in. But never mind. You don't have to. We can uh, we can make our decision here. And uh, Al, we'll be- it's your show. Like I said, it's it's you know, it's it's habit forming, unfortunately. Um I, well, that's interesting that it is. And uh, you were in immigration and enforcement. And that's an interesting thing to hear because i know that that's not where your heart is right believe me you know uh, i've heard so much worse yeah definitely definitely okay all right well listen it, it seems to me that we should have uh, we should do a, a two-parter on this and molly uh, also read your book um <laughs> you have to wait a, you have to wait a minute for uh you have to wait a minute for that one Hey, Molly, I have uh, this is I have a piece of advice for anyone writing a book. Hmm. Okay, and here it is. And this is for all my audience, too, who's writing a book. Park on the downhill. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Park on the downhill means this. Before you finish where you know you're going. For that day's work. If you are, if you say, you know what, I, I, I know exactly where I'm going right now, and I was going to work another uh, uh, half an hour and finish what I know what I'm going to write, don't. Hmm. And I'll tell you why. Because then the next day, when you sit down to your computer, when you sit down to write, you know exactly where you're going. Okay. And that way, you don't have to face a blank page. If you do that every day, there's nothing worse than the blank page. Everyone I've given this advice to thanks me later. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll make a mental note for uh, I'll make a mental note for, uh, for for the thanking later. We'll have Peter give you the information on how you can thank me. Okay, great. <laughs> and and we we got to have you both back because uh, or, uh, this is. Uh, this is too big a discussion. So, and I want to thank you both so much. You know, it'd be interesting now to see now that uh, what, what happens on the border doesn't stay on the border with what's happening in the, some of our major cities. It'd be interesting to get Molly's input and reaction because, I, you know, again, broadcasting from where you're from, that's becoming a hot topic. Yeah, for sure. All of the movement, all of the movement from the border to New York, to Chicago, to, uh, well, at one point it was Martha's Vineyard, right? Yeah. I mean, people, people move and a lot of their families that they have are all across the United States. So it's not just a border. It's not just a border thing. Uh, you know, it's far beyond the border. And, and, and communities benefit, uh, from this, you know, I, I've seen this in Minnesota, in, in Wilmer, Minnesota, where, we have influx first of, of Latinos, and we have a Jenny O plant there. And I, I gave a graduation, a commencement speech there. And I looked at, there were 234, I think, graduates. And half were of Minnesota, German, German, uh, Scandinavian heritage. And about a third were of Minnesota, 
Latino heritage. And I'd say about 15% or so were of Somali heritage. And um, the graduation speaker, there were three speakers, a class president, his last name was Hovland. So I think that's, that's Scandinavian and he was half German. And the valedictorian, she was from Ecuador. And the other speaker that uh, was, had been one of my pages. This is why I spoke at this graduation. And she was from um, her family. She was, it was from Somalia. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a perfect example. And my and my partner is from from Minnesota, so I, uh, I I'm, I'm familiar with this as as well. But it's a perfect example. I mean, this is it's really immigration is not it's not one you know one area of the world. I mean, it really is from all over the world. And this you know it's it's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves that we are a nation of immigrants. And so it's pretty interesting that in our our politics and our policy, you know, Im- immigration seems to have become sort of a dirty word, any immigration, legal, there used to be sort of a distinction, well, illegal immigration, bad, legal immigration, good, but asylum is legal immigration. And the whole conversation has sort of shifted in which what used to be the norm or simply a return to the norm or a return to following the law, for example, a return to following asylum law, at least in this context, is now looked at as something sort of extreme. So we've come a long way from this sort of story that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about being a nation of immigrants. But this really global immigration, I think it's it's sort of going to force all of us to confront, you know, what is the reality of immigration today? And, you know, in this world that we live in, uh, you know, this displaced planet, this refugee planet that we live on. Let's end it there, shall we? Uh, thank you both. Uh, so much. This has really been um, a great conversation. If I do say so myself, because I kind of let it. <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.